You're listening to Hematopoiesis, a new podcast by the American Society of Hematology Training Council. In 2020, the ASH Training Council embarked on a mission to create a new online platform for hematology trainees that represents the entire diverse spectrum of budding hematologists, from medical students to residents to fellows to doctoral students. With this new podcast, which is entirely curated and produced by the ASH Training Council, we hope to bring exciting educational and career-focused hematology content to you and the community of hematology trainees around the globe. My name is Dr. Ajay Major, current chair of the ASH Trainee Council and a hematology-oncology fellow at the University of Chicago. I am so glad to have you join me and my guests for today's episode of Hematopoiesis. For those of you who attended the ASH 2021 annual meeting, either virtually or in person, you may have noticed the special interest sessions on systems-based hematology, featuring talks about perioperative blood management and bloodless medicine programs. And you may have asked yourself, what really is systems-based hematology? Well, today, on the latest episode of Hematopoiesis, we interview three eminent leaders in this newly defined practice of hematology about how ASH spearheaded the systems-based hematology movement, the unique skill sets of these clinician researchers, and how trainees can create their own careers as systems-based hematologists. First, we start with Dr. Nathan Cannell. Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Clinical Chief of Hematology at Brigham and Women's Faulkner Hospital. Dr. Cannell was the first author on a 2015 publication in the journal Blood, in which the American Society of Hematology formally defined the role of a systems-based hematologist. When we first proposed it in the original paper that came out, we defined it as a physician employed by a health system or an institution that simultaneously worked to optimize the care of delivery of patients with blood disorders, and also the actual care of those patients as well. So for instance, you know, a hematologist that works on thrombosis and hemostasis might have a panel of patients that they're caring for treating with anticoagulation, but the bigger job might also be how do you prevent venous thromboembolism in hospitalized patients? So thinking about what are the protocols that the hospital has in place to actually prevent VTE and make sure that there's adherence to evidence-based guidelines. Really, when you think about it, it really can apply to anything in hematology whether it be malignant or non-malignant disorders. I tend to think of it like the health system is the patient that you're treating. And so you want to make sure that the system is as optimized as much as possible. Dr. Cannell's quote, the health system as the patient, is a poignant phrase to summarize the role of systems-based hematologists. And it's the foundation of all quality improvement projects that has been a cornerstone of improving healthcare quality for decades. It shouldn't be surprising, then, to find that academic hematologists have already been doing quality improvement work for their health systems for decades. Dr. Ming Lim, an assistant professor in non-malignant hematology at the University of Utah who has worked as a systems-based hematologist, recounts her first exposure to the field. So I think I got involved in system-based hematology when I was in my first attending job at the Medical University of South Carolina. I had the privilege to work with Dr. Charles Greenberg And to me, if you ask me, I think he would be considered the pioneer of systems-based hematology. So I would say that he was kind of working as a systems-based hematologist even before Ash created this new role subspecialty. And so when I started my faculty position in 2015 there, I was seeing what he was doing on a regular basis. 
And one of his most successful work was looking at heparin-induced thrombocytopenia hit. And his main project at the time was reducing the use of the gatroban infusion for treatment of suspected hit. And in fact, this project of his was highlighted as one of the opportunity to provide value-based care in that initial ASH paper that was first authored by Dr. Cornell, introducing the term systems-based hematology back in 2015. Back in 2011-2012, even before the term system-based hematology was coined by Ash, Dr. Greenberg at the time had successfully negotiated with our Department of Medicine to set up an anticoagulation and bleeding management medical directorship. Pretty much unheard of, you know, for our healthcare system and he received a certain percentage of salary support for this. And that last point by Dr. Lim about salary support is key, because her experience begs the question, why spend the effort to define a whole new field of hematology when hematologists are already successfully doing the work? The answer, as Dr. Connell describes, has to do with the changing pressures within academia and a need to empower hematologists to get the support they need. In academic institutions, you had hematologists that focused on non-malignant aspects, but everything was focused around two things. Either you took care of patients or you did research. And the research piece was purely a dichotomy of clinical trials or basic science research. And what we also started to realize is that hematologists were being pulled in to a lot of these institutional committees to provide guidance around cost. And as with most things in the work environment, we're oftentimes asked to do it without any sort of support resources or protected time and salary to do it. So we realized hematologists were doing this. We also wanted to be able to show that hematologists could expand outside of clinical trials, research, and patient care and try to see, you know, what about epidemiology and public health? What about health economics, the business of it? So the push by Ash to define systems-based hematology not only served the purpose of establishing the field's legitimacy in the academic sphere, as well as demonstrating that hematologists can do meaningful work outside of traditional clinical trials or translational work, but also enabled hematologists to secure protected time to do that systems-based hematology work. As Dr. Lim explains, writing a business plan and demonstrating the cost savings of all of her projects enabled her to secure protected time in academia. And so by having all these projects, I was able to demonstrate the value. And that's kind of what I did in our business plan. Because with any business plan, we had to document what was the magnitude of the problem and what we did, how we complete our PDSA cycle. And then with the help of our data analysts, we were able to document how much cost savings we brought to our institution. And so when you have concrete numbers there, that makes it easier to write the business plan. I will say that having never written one before without an MBA, I found it extremely daunting. <laughs> and so I Googled business plans, you know, for corporate businesses to understand the terminology and the jargon used. But fortunately, I also had help from the chair of medicine who sort of provided me with template. And so using that template, I created the business plan for my own role, demonstrating that this is the time I put into it. These are the cost savings I was able to achieve. And that helped me negotiate partial salary support from my institution to support the time and effort to continue on this role. And with the way paved by hematologists like Dr. Lim, who demonstrated systems-based hematology as a viable pathway into academic medicine, a whole new generation of hematologists have emerged from fellowship training and gone directly into practice as systems-based hematologists. Dr. Jory May, an assistant professor at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, was hired directly out of fellowship to be a systems-based hematologist. Yeah, so I think it's first important to highlight that I was only really able to get a job doing this because so many hematologists have been almost doing it on the side or doing it informally. 
So because of the work that has been done by people who have been working in this field, showing the value of these systems-based interventions, I now have the opportunity to call myself a systems-based hematologist and do that work. So what that looks like is really improving hematologic care across health systems is kind of how I like to think about it. And that's always a little bit vague. And I think it's most helpful to talk about specific examples of systems-based interventions in hematology that are and have been shown to be effective. And so a lot of that reaches into areas of hematology that are relevant to patients across the health system. So anticoagulation management is a very common example. So how can we as hematologists collaborate with other specialties to ensure that anticoagulation is being used safely and appropriately? Other kind of more niche things such as looking at those areas of hematologic care that are challenging for other specialties. So heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, how can we assist in the diagnosis and management? Thrombophilia testing is one that often comes up. How can we be stewards of thrombophilia testing across health systems? It is clear that systems-based hematology is a huge umbrella, interfacing with multiple inpatient and outpatient touchpoints and incorporating everything from evidence-based medicine to cost of care. As Dr. May mentioned, the practice of a systems-based hematologist is a little bit vague, but that's intentional, says Dr. Lim. I think one of the challenges is getting people to understand the role. Even though Ash introduced this role in 2015, as Dr. Cornell likely mentioned, this role is very variable and it was intentionally so because one size doesn't fit all. And so the role has been defined, but it's also purposely left broad so that as the clinician, you can choose to work in whichever areas that fits best for your institution. And choosing research questions informed by the experiences at an individual institution or a specific healthcare system is vital for a systems-based hematologist. Dr. Lim's research flowed directly from her experiences in the inpatient consult service, in which she witnessed obvious situations in which money could be saved for patients and for the healthcare system. Because I was a full-time clinician, I was doing a lot of inpatient consults. I was seeing a lot of clinical situations where we could streamline and standardize the process to avoid inappropriate testing and waste. Pretty much kind of low-hanging fruits. So one of them was reducing inappropriate thrombophilia testing inpatient. And I did that by creating hard stops and epic order sets and also providing educations to other departments to make them aware and educate them on the evidence for thrombophilia testing. Another low-hanging fruit was IVC filter, which I worked with interventional radiology to first perform an audit to determine the magnitude of the problem and then come up with a trivial strategy, which has worked very well. The prospect of navigating the many stakeholders of an entire healthcare system to address something as complex as IVC filter placement and removal may seem daunting, but Dr. May reiterates that starting small has its benefits as you learn about your healthcare system. So one thing that we are attempting to do now is actually an e-consult for the diagnosis of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And I'll tell you how we kind of came to that. At our current institution, there is a lot of opportunity to increase benign hematology input. A lot of hematologic conditions, they don't necessarily call. So providers are managing them independently and maybe don't have the specific expertise. So how can we become more involved to try and assist in some of these more complex diagnoses? We wanted to pick something small and manageable. So heparin-induced thrombocytopenia and the diagnosis of that condition is hopefully going to be a springboard on which to expand our efforts in looking at anticoagulation stewardship. But the way that it works is that if a patient has a HIT antibody, so a screening test done for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, ordered by a primary team, and that test comes back positive, we as the e-consult team are able to review the chart and provide some initial recommendations for how to manage that patient, particularly recommendations about anticoagulation management. 
And so what we have found is during this period of time, so there's the HIT ELISA, which is the initial screening test, and then there's a confirmatory assay that has to come later. At our institution, we send out for something called the serotonin release assay, and that's how we know for sure whether a patient has HIT or not. But this in-between time is a dangerous time for patients. So are we making sure that we're stopping heparin if necessary? Are we starting a non-heparin anticoagulant? If we're using a non-heparin anticoagulant, are we using it appropriately and safely? Is there other testing that needs to be done to look for thrombosis? So really trying to make sure that during this window period, we are providing good evidence-based guidance. And then when the SRA comes back, are we then able to provide appropriate guidance to ensure that if they have heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, that they're being treated with evidence-based, guideline-based recommendations? So I think what I have learned from talking to others and what I'm hoping to do with these efforts is by starting small, starting on something where you can show value, particularly, you know, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is a common problem in the cardiovascular surgery space, which is usually a very important part of an academic healthcare system. It's using a medication like bivalrudin, which we use at our institution as a non-heparin anticoagulant, which is expensive and comes with a lot of potential for bleeding risk. So really focusing on what's a small intervention that can show value so that you can work on that big hurdle of trying to convince the institution that expanding this effort is important to the institution and worth making that resource investment. But what about systems-based hematology outside of academic medicine? For many of our listeners who are trainees interested in a career in hybrid practices or private practice, Dr. Lim explains that systems-based hematology may be particularly important for these types of healthcare delivery systems. So I think, as you know as well, the traditional academic hematology is the clinician scientist, either basic laboratory or clinical research or the clinician educator. But as we now know, these career options are not for everyone. So I think having the additional role of systems-based hematologists interfaces will actually close a gap because we now see that more and more academic medical centers have networks of smaller hospitals in their community under their umbrella. And so you can see the role of this academic hematologist slash systems-based hematologist creating standardized guidelines, changing the infrastructure of care delivery across the network, all in the goal of providing value-based care. So I feel that systems-based hematology, the role itself, complements and also closes the gap in academic hematology. In addition, I also strongly feel that systems-based hematology interfaces extremely well for community practices, especially those that have a large network of clinics and hospitals within their healthcare system. So I see this role as a way of bridging the gap between traditional academic medicine and community practice medicine, both of which is a win-win situation. It opens up more avenues or career options for hematologists, regardless of whether you are academically inclined or whether you are in the community. So what does the future of a systems-based hematologist look like, especially for those trainees who are interested in developing a career in this brand new field? Dr. Connell reiterates that trainees will be at the core of the systems-based hematology movement. I think the biggest thing that we're going to see is an expanding interest in it amongst trainees. And so particularly with a lot of trainees that I've talked to in the last year or two at the ASH annual meeting or different sessions that we've had, I hear repeatedly I'm not really interested in basic science, you know, clinical trials. It's a long time to do that. I really would like a project that I can work on over the period of a year or two and show that I'm actually helping patients directly and have a little bit of ownership over this. So we've at the ASH annual meeting started having sessions, special education sessions on systems-based hematology with a networking component. I think we're finally getting to a critical mass of people at institutions across the U.S. who are doing the work and have been successful in it and are now starting to think about publishing their work. 
So in the next five years, I would love to see more publications, fellows presenting their data of how they moved the needle on a cost-saving intervention at their institution during their fellowship. Dr. May remembers being one of those trainees interested in systems-based hematology and recounts how she was able to jumpstart her career. Yeah, you know, I think that's exactly where I was. So, you know, I'm fortunate at my training institution, there are fantastic hematologists, but no one who was specifically doing this work. So I think the great thing is that through ASH, there are opportunities now to reach out to people who are doing this work. So the way that I started on my path was actually I read that article and Dr. Connell was one of the authors and I sent him an email. And from there, he has been very generous in guiding me along my path. So I think reaching out to people who are doing the work I think it's a generous community and anybody would be happy to discuss it. The pandemic has clearly pushed hematology into the forefront with a pressing need for systems-based approaches to anticoagulation and vaccination in immunocompromised patients. And it is clear that systems-based hematology is poised to address these urgent needs. This new field melds the care of individual patients by individual clinicians with the larger public health framework, addressing the entire model of care delivery with an eye towards evidence-based and value-based care in a system with finite resources. And in discussion with our three systems-based hematologists today, there's clearly an open niche for budding hematology trainees to entering this growing space with broad opportunities to customize your own career. If you're interested in a future career as a systems-based hematologist, feel free to reach out to our interviewees and check out the ASH website for more resources. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for future episodes of Hematopoiesis, a new podcast brought to you by the ASH Trainee Council and four hematology trainees. And be sure to read our hematopoiesis publication on the ASH website.